Hello, I'm Alec Avdikov, and welcome to the life and times of Frederick the Great. Before I get going with the narrative, I'm going to tell you about the horribly deadly but extremely crucial War of Spanish Succession. I want to tell you about another podcast that I cannot highly recommend enough. This show is called Euripides Humanities, and if you like learning about history and theater as I do, you will definitely enjoy this podcast. This show made me laugh a ton, and he has a much more professional sound than I do. I have enjoyed listening to everything that I have listened to, and I know that you will too. The link to his podcast is in the description of the episode, and is again called Euripides Humanities by Trident Theater. Seriously, this guy is really good. I must also bring up the fact that listeners out there can listen to exclusive content on my Patreon account. I cannot stress enough that I will have to quit podcasting after about 20 episodes if I do not receive your support. The goal is to have $9 a month so I can continue podcasting after those 20 episodes. The link to that is in the description. Also, you can email me at aavdikov one at gmail.com to ask me any questions. I would love to hear feedback from you all. Rate me on Apple Podcasts and subscribe if you want to hear more. Now that that's all out of the way, I can go straight into the content. But first, let me explain why we are discussing this topic. The War of Spanish Succession set up the stage that Frederick the Great would play on in European politics. It was the last war of Louis XIV and set up the eventual decline of France that happened from that point onward. Prussia also was involved in the war, supplying troops against the French under the command of Prince Eugene of Savoy, arguably the best commander ever to serve for Austria. He is completely undervalued and deserves more press than he does. I will mainly focus on what happened in Europe and its consequences rather than only talking about what Prussia did or talking about every single battle and siege of the war. This also had global impacts on America, Asia, and India. However, I will take you on a mainly Eurocentric view because that's where the majority of the fighting is at and since Prussia was not a colonial power that the struggles beyond Europe did not really concern them. In the last episode, we talked about the reign of Frederick I of the king in Prussia. We talked about the struggles of Prussia to become a kingdom, the decrease of personal rule compared to his father, the great elector, and his domestic policies that met with some failures and successes. We now travel to a warm fall evening in Madrid, Spain, where a baby has just been born. He will become known as El Echizado, or the bewitched. He will become known as the future king of Spain, and he is the reason that the Habsburg family line in Spain died out, and therefore led to the War of Spanish Succession. In the first episode, I talked about why the Habsburgs did so much inbreeding. They married into every family of importance until they became the most important family in Europe. Therefore, they ended up having one of the most messed up family trees I've ever seen.
all of this to have a pure family bloodline. Charles II became king of Spain in 1665, when he was just three years old. And as we saw in Louis XIV's case, his mother became the regent and ruled in the name of Carlos. Some personal details about Carlos. He had the classic Habsburg jaw in which the lower jaw protruded outward to have a gigantic underbite. He couldn't chew his own food and drooled a ton. He was breastfed until he was five years old. He had a vitamin D inefficiency because he was never taken outside. And he was never educated because they were afraid that mental strain would kill him. And I mean, who knows? They could have been right. He married twice and produced no children. Thank goodness for the world's sake. However, with no heirs, the Habsburg line in Spain would become extinct. He named the grandson of Louis XIV his successor and lived to the ripe old age of 39. Seriously, how he lived that long was honestly amazing. They even did an autopsy on Carlos, which was extremely rare at the time. The autopsy report said, The body did not contain a single drop of blood. His heart was the size of a peppercorn. His lungs were corroded. His intestines rotten and gangrenous, and his head was full of water. Now, how true any of this is, I do not know, but I want to believe that some Spanish doctor from 1700 was telling the truth. So, that was the life of the insane Carlos II of Spain. I don't even know how to make a joke about his life, just never inbreed, I guess, I don't know. Anyway, his death on November 1st, left the Grand Dauphin, or the successor to the throne of France, to become the King of Spain. However, Leopold I of the Holy Roman Empire, a Habsburg, did not want a huge, powerful, united France and Spain, which included the vast fortunes of the silver mines in America. Already, in grand strategic terms, Austria was outnumbered by France in population, with France having nearly 20 million people within their borders, and Austria had only 11 million. With France and Spain unite, they, there could be nothing to stop Louis XIV from dominating the continent. However, Louis did not want a continental war, and according to the book The Shaping of Grand Strategy, Policy, Diplomacy, and War by Jim Lacey, Richard Seinrich, and Williamson Murray, Louis sincerely wished to avoid another war, and so agreed to a partition treaty in 1698 that would award only Naples, Sicily, and parts of Tuscany to the Grand Dauphin, who is both son and grandson of Spanish princesses. The Habsburg claimant, Archduke Charles, second son of Emperor Leopold, would receive Milan. All the rest would go to a weaker candidate, the son of the elector Bavaria. Because this would avoid a Bourbon-Habsburg war. However, this fell through because the son of the Bavarian elector died that same year. To simplify all of this, it then became a pissing match between Louis XIV and France on one side, and the Habsburgs and Archduke Charles on the other. The Habsburg also had many allies, including the Dutch, the British, Portugal, 
And because the Habsburgs supported their claim to become a kingdom, Prussia joined in as well. Those who allied with the Habsburgs were in favor of a balance in power in Europe so that nobody had dominance of the continent. The Allies against France also had two men who were, in my opinion, military forces of nature. These two men were John Churchill, the ancestor of Winston Churchill, and Prince Eugene of Savoy. Here's what the book The Shaping of Grand Strategy, Diplomacy, Policy, and War had to say about them. During the, his earlier years, the French army had done well. Louis XIV was accustomed to victory. However, in this conflict, his forces suffered a number of disastrous defeats at the hands of a pair of superb Allied commanders, the Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill, and Eugene of Savoy. One can argue that Marlborough was the finest captain ever to lead a British army on one hand, and Eugene the finest to lead an Austrian army on the other. In 1704, they joined to crush a Franco-Bavarian army at Blenheim. Other French defeats followed, Ramillies and Turin in 1706, and Udernade in 1708. The tale of disaster was all made worse by a horrendous famine that struck over the winter of 1709 through 1710. The Battle of Blenheim was probably the most famous battle of the time and was an extraordinarily bloody battle. Since this campaign led to the most famous battle of the war, I am going to focus on. On May 19th, the Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill, began his famous march to meet Prince Eugene of Savoy, and started in the town of Bedburg. He was expected to attack the French along the Moselle River and the frontier of France. Instead, he secretly marched his troops which was a mix of Dutch and British troops, and used barges to travel up the Rhine River an astounding 80 miles a day, or 130 kilometers a day. According to Stephen Saunders Webb's book, Marlborough's America, by 4 p.m., the leading elements of the Captain General's cavalry had reached the crossing of Wernitz. By 6, they were in contact with Eugene at Münster. By nightfall, Marlborough himself had come up. Before midnight, he and Eugene had concentrated 65 battalions and 160 squadrons of cavalry in a strong defensive position behind the Kessel. History was set for the glorious battle that would decide the fate of Europe. The French and Bavarians were on one side, and the Allies under the two military geniuses, the Duke of Marlborough and the Prince Eugene of Savoy on the other. The French set up their line with the Bavarians on the left at Lützingen and on the left and Marshal Talad, the French commander, on the right positioned at Blindheim. Despite Churchill and Eugene facing a formidable defense, they would attack. The battle started with Eugene attacking the Bavarians on the far left of the line and John Churchill attacking the far right of the line at Blindheim. Both of these attacks failed to break through, but they did put pressure on the Franco-Bavarian lines. Then, 
the Duke of Marlborough called for a great attack in the center to smash through the French line, and it was a major success. Both Eugene and Duke of Marlborough became famous from the battle, but it came at a major cost. Here is a quote from a poem about the aftermath of the battle. They say it was a shocking sight after the field was won, for many thousand bodies here lay rotting in the sun. But things like that you know must be after a famous victory. With each side having roughly 50,000 men in the battle, the Allies lost 12,000 killed and wounded, whereas the French lost 40,000 killed, wounded, and captured. The Battle of Blenheim stopped the French from quickly knocking out the Habsburgs from the war. And the war would last 13 years in total. This would cost the lives of around 1 million people. Truly, Maria Theresa was correct when she said, better a mediocre peace than a successful war. The war turned sharply against the French, and the Allies began to advance upon Paris itself from the Spanish Netherlands in what is today Belgium. The two forces met upon the battlefield of Malplaquet in what was the bloodiest battle in European history until the disastrous battle of Borodina a century later in the Napoleonic Wars in Russia. A new character in our story will be introduced here. The young crown prince of, B- of Prussia was on the battlefield. His name is Frederick Wilhelm, the father of Frederick the Great. According to David Fraser's biography of Frederick the Great, Frederick Wilhelm had been present in the imperial forces at the Battle of Malplaquet. Marlborough's and Eugene's bloody victory over the French in 1709 and the battle probably greatly affected the mind of the young prince of Prussia, aged 21. The casualties on both sides had been horrific. France had lost over 12,000 men that day, while Marlborough and Eugene recorded casualties of 24,000, although they had won the fight. This battle led to the beginning of peace talks in 1709. According to J.H. Shannon's book on Louis XIV, the peace preliminaries of 1709 marked the turning point of the war. Among the sacrifices Louis was willing to make were the key fortresses of Ypres, Menin, Fernet, Condé, Montmartre, Dornay, and Lille in the Netherlands, and the great prize of Strasbourg in Alsace. He was also resigned to the expulsion of his grandson from the Spanish Empire. His dream of united Bourbon bloc in Western Europe was shattered, and his policy of building and maintaining security on France's most vulnerable frontiers, accomplished over several generations, lay in ruins. If peace had been signed in 1709, Louis XIV's foreign policy would have ended in disaster, and his reputation would have been permanently tarnished. However, the Allies wanted to have Archduke Charles be the King of Spain. They had the slogan of, No peace without Spain. But with good old Louis being stubborn, 
He said that he was not going to have that happen, and so the war continued. Leopold, the Holy Roman Emperor, who reigned from 1658, died in 1705, and this left his eldest son to be elected the Holy Roman Emperor in 1705. The war continued for another two years after the huge battle of Malplaquet in 1709, until in 1711, Joseph died, thus making Archduke Charles the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, I know that what I said was very confusing, but basically, the Habsburg that claimed the Spanish throne now became the Holy Roman Emperor. Therefore, the Allies, specifically Great Britain, didn't feel the whole no peace without Spain thing really applied anymore. The British did not want anyone to dominate the continent, whether French or Habsburg. The tide of the war turned completely against the Allies when the French defeated the military genius Prince Eugene at the Battle of Denain in 1712. This battle basically set the outcome of the war. Louis XIV had secured the Spanish throne for his grandson, and the war ended with the Peace of Utrecht. There were, in total, 12 treaties that made up the Peace of Utrecht. There were both Allied and French gains in the war, and this continued the balance of power in Europe. Louis XIV would lose a few fortress towns in Flanders and Alsace. Philip of Anjou, the grandson of Louis XIV, would become the king of Spain, but was not allowed to become the king of France on top of that. The Habsburgs would gain the Spanish Netherlands, lands in Italy, including Milan, Naples, and the island of Sardinia. Great Britain would receive the Spanish island of Minorca, uh, one of the three Balearic islands, and they would receive the gatekeeper of the Mediterranean, Gibraltar. The lesser allies of Savoy and Prussia also received minor border territories as compensation for their participation in the war. The article of the treaty is in regards to the British capture of Gibraltar. The Catholic king does hereby for himself, his successors and heirs, yield to the crown of Great Britain the full and entire propriety of the town and castle of Gibraltar, together with the port, fortifications, and forts thereunto belonging. And he gives up the said propriety to be held and enjoyed absolutely with all manner of right forever, without any exception or impediment whatsoever. Overall, this war had greatly affected the balance of power in Europe. By the end of the war, Britain had the largest navy in the world. France had lost a considerable amount of people in the conflict, and Louis XIV, the Sun King, would die the very next year. Here's what J.H. Shannon had to say about Louis's legacy. Louis XIV bequeathed a troubled inheritance to his great-grandson, Louis XV. It was, of course, a fact beyond his control that a series of deaths in the royal family resulted in the succession of a five-year-old child. On the other hand, he had done little to modernize the outmoded physical system or to loosen the straitjacket of social conservative. And France would suffer increasingly during the 18th century from a lack of flexibility in both these areas.
Essentially, his reign spelled the doom of the French monarchy. This war had a major impact on the European balance of power. Although Prussia did not play a huge part in the conflict, without Frederick Wilhelm's experience in the war, Prussia's army would not have expanded to the size it would on the eve of the next European Continental War. This war would be the War of the Austrian Succession, and Frederick the Great would be the next great commander in European history. Thank you all for listening. Remember to check out Euripides Humanities by Trident Theatre in the link in the description. Do not forget to check out my Patreon to get exclusive content only patrons get to listen to. This week, I shall conclude in Spanish, considering the name of the war. Therefore, I say to you, hasta la próxima semana. See you next week.